Hi folks, it's Rabbi Sharon Browse here. You are listening to Ikar's podcast where you can hear our sermons from Shabbat and holidays, our guest speakers, our teachers, anything we think worth listening to that we can capture, you can hear right here. Thank you so much for being with us. I want to share that one month after our oldest child, Eva, was born, something absolutely miraculous happened. We put her down to go to bed at 6.30 at night, and this child awoke at 6.30 the next morning. (laughs) Um, We thought it was a fluke. So we put her to bed the next night, assuming that she'd be up one or two or three hours later, and again, she slept through the night. And so we could only um, understand this to be an incredible miracle that we were so graced to be blessed with an infant, really a newborn who could sleep like that. It did make things kind of awkward when we would go out with other parents of newborns and David had to feign exhaustion, just like all the other dads who were feigning exhaustion. <laughs> and, um, and then inevitably the conversation would, would turn to sleeplessness and um, we would give each other kind of a knowing glance across the room and at some point had to conclude that clearly we were just stellar parents and that's why we were not experiencing whatever everyone else was. It was two and a half years later when Sammy Browslight was born that we learned that revenge is a dish best served between 1 a.m. and 7 a.m. every single morning for five years. <laughs> and um, she, slept, she slept for the first time on her fifth birthday through the night, so thank God for that. Anyway, this is not a sermon about um, humble parenting (laughs) or about revenge, Um, but I do want to start by talking about sleeplessness because I really haven't slept well (laughs) these last few weeks, really, I think it's few years, and I have a feeling that I, at least in this room, am not at all alone. Soon, we're going to hear the the jarring blast of the shofar. This is intended by our tradition to be a kind of spiritual alarm clock to stir the soul awake from from its slumber. It's a moral awakening that we're going for when we hear the sound of the shofar. This is the, the first step in the process of tshuva, the possibility of transformation that really is the hallmark of these high holy days. And it seems really clear that the spiritual architects of our tradition were desperate to make sure that we don't sleep through the revolution. And so every year on Rosh Hashanah, we come here and we start the year with a powerful blast to make sure that we're awake. But this year, I think we're already awake. It's the floods in New York City and in New Jersey, tornadoes in in Philadelphia, the devastation in Louisiana and the fires in Tahoe, it's repression. It's this dystopian fetal heartbeat law that simultaneously harkens back to the fugitive slave laws and also heralds a new era, an assault on women's health and autonomy. It's also suppression, the recall effort here in California and widespread voter disenfranchisement efforts around the country all cynical attempts to subvert the will of a changing majority. It's the images from the 
tarmac in Kabul, and unthinkable loss in Haiti. It's watching our ICUs fill up again with COVID patients, this time with teens and children on the front lines. The problem is not that we're sleeping through it all. The problem might be that we can't sleep at all. And nevertheless, in a few moments, we're going to rise to hear the shofar's call in the hopes that somehow it might pierce through some of the layers of the scar tissue surrounding our hearts. But this year, I want to ask you to pay attention to something that is almost absurdly audacious that happens shortly after the shofar service. And when our liturgy undercuts the very power of the shofar experience. It says in Unatan Etokef, which we say in Musaf, shofar gadol yitaka, taka The great shofar is sounded, but the still small voice, that's the voice that's heard. The still small voice. You might know that reference. It's a reference to the first book of Kings, the prophet Elijah. He's fleeing from the authorities. He ends up standing alone on top of the very mountain where Israel received the revelation from God years before. And suddenly, a great and strong wind tears through the mountains. And it breaks the rock apart. But the text says God was not in that wind. And after the wind, there's an earthquake. But God was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But God was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was a still small voice. And when Elijah heard that voice, he wrapped up his face in his cloak, and behold, that was the moment that God's voice came to him. Think of what this text is saying to us, that God is not in the fire. God's in the whisper. God's not in the floods and the hurricane and the moments of cataclysmic havoc when the whole world trembles. God is in the in-between spaces. God is in the stillness. The great shofar is sounded. It may awaken you, but it won't change you. The still small voice, that's the one that's heard in the very depths of your being. But I wonder this year, can we even hear the inner voice above the grief and sorrow and rage and moral confusion of our time? You know, we're taught calculus and economics and US history and British literature in school, but we're hardly ever taught at all how to get still, how to be quiet. We know how to care for our bodies, but we talk very little about what it means to actually care for our souls. How much time and resource must we dedicate to cultivate an interior life, the development of awe, the awareness of the beauty and mystery and wonder of life itself, to the creation of a moral compass. What does it take to build a true moral compass? What does it take to develop conscience? How do we get quiet enough to discern what's actually right? These are questions that are with us all the time, but during High Holy Days, there's an even greater weight to these questions. This time of cheshbon hanefesh, when we're called to prioritize the inner work, and especially today, in our time of compounding and accelerating crises, when the heart cries out for calm and for comfort and for moral clarity. Rosh Hashanah every year is, is punctuated by two Torah readings, one read today and one read tomorrow. And they're both 
character studies of our ancestor Abraham from the book of Genesis. I want to ask you to consider today what our rabbis intended by placing two harrowing Abraham tales as the central, central narratives of this holiday that sets us off into this new year. Two stories of a man confronting his responsibilities and his limitations, not as a leader, but really as a father. Let me give you a little bit of context for what we just read today. Abraham has been promised by God that he'll be a great nation, and his offspring will be as numerous as the stars of the heavens. But Abraham and Sarah can't conceive, and they're getting very old. Time is running out. So in desperation, Sarah tells Abraham to take Hagar, Shifchad Mitzrit, their Egyptian handmaid, and have a child with her. And Abraham very dutifully marries Hagar, and together they have a boy named Ishmael, for God has heard your prayer. Blessed be the fruit. Today's story takes place a few chapters later, when Sarah, too, in her old age, has miraculously been able to conceive and hold a pregnancy and give birth to her own boy named Yitzchak, named Isaac. Not long after his birth, though, Sarah becomes consumed with her jealousy over Hagar and Ishmael. We don't know what exactly Ishmael does that is the final straw here. The text simply says that he's mitzachek, that he's playing with his little brother, but our rabbis read layers and layers of meaning into this word, prone as we are to confirmation bias. Surely there must be something nefarious that this boy has done in order to justify our matriarch Sarah's extreme response. Maybe he threatened his brother. Maybe it was some kind of violent assault. Maybe it was idol worship. All of that when the pshat, the obvious reading of our text, indicates that it was likely simply the toxic combination of power and privilege. Get rid of this slave woman and her son, says Sarah. For the son of that slave shall not share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. It is ugly. Abraham's all torn up by Sarah's demand. He loves Ishmael. He cannot imagine sending his own child away. But God dismisses Abraham's concerns. Don't worry about the boy. Don't worry about the slave. Just listen to Sarah, God says. She knows what's right. And so the matter is settled. And in an instant, Abraham's conscience is suppressed. He will comply. The next morning, Vayashkim Avraham Baboker. He gets up early. He packs his bread and his water. And he sends Hagar and Ishmael out to die. I want you to know that in the ancient world, sending a child and a woman unaccompanied out into the desert is essentially a death sentence, despite God's hint that they're going to be okay. This narrative ends as we, the reader, learn that Hagar and Ishmael are miraculously saved, but Abraham remains ignorant of that fact, left to believe that he essentially just killed his wife and his child. That rupture, that terrible rupture, which we read today, is the context for the narrative that we will read tomorrow, the Akedah, the binding of Isaac. Once again, an outside voice, this time God's voice, tells Abraham to do the unthinkable, to take his remaining son up the mountain and slaughter him for God. 
Kachna, et bincha, et yechidcha. Take your son, your only son. For generations we've asked, why does it say only son? Abraham is too? Because Abraham thinks his first son is already dead. Take your son, your only son, up the mountain and slaughter him. This time, we hear no indication of Abraham's heartache or distress. He's numb. I think he learned from the past encounter to disregard his anguished heart. Less thought, more action. Vayashkem Avraham Baboker. Once again, he gets up early in the morning and obediently, robotically, fanatically, he heads up that mountain to murder his only child now, his future. He remains single-minded, laser-focused at the task at hand. Even when he's confronted by his son, Isaac, who asks him this searing question. We have the fire and the wood, Abba. But where's the sheep? Where's the animal for this great sacrifice? And yet Abraham marches on. But then, in the moment of truth, the knife poised above the boy's neck, Abraham pauses. And it's that pause that I'm most interested in. That pause, a, a lacuna in the text, an empty space between the dark letters, so subtle that you could miss it were it not for the screaming logic of the thing. How else could a man who is so feverish in his desire to fulfill God's will have heard the quiet whisper of an angel calling him to put down his knife? How else could this train barreling off the cliff of human decency have stopped in its tracks? I wonder if any of you have ever pursued something with that kind of intoxicating fervor or someone, perhaps. When the heat of desire is so relentless that it drowns out the voices of reason, internal and external, that might call you off, something must have switched inside of Abraham to pull him back from the edge. And thankfully, I'm not alone in reading a pause here, invisible but wholly significant, because Emmanuel Levinas, the French philosopher, reads the Akedah, the story of the binding of Isaac, not as blind obedience, but actually as the very essence of ethical disobedience. How is that the case? Levinas, too, perceives that something has caused Abraham to be still, long enough to hear the voice of compassion, of reason, of moral urgency. That unwritten moment, according to Levinas, is the highest point of our drama, the moment that brings Abraham back to the ethical order, letting him know that it is absolutely impossible for him to harm this child. The sacrifice is aborted. The boy survives. The significance of this story, then, is not that Abraham was willing to take the life of his child, we already know that from what he did the day before to Ishmael. The significance is that unlike one chapter earlier, what we read today, when Abraham disengages his conscience and sends his child off to die this time, his conscience prevails and he saves another. His moral compass is activated. He's able to hear that still small voice when it matters most. And that voice is what compels him to embrace life. Today, I hear this with the greatest urgency. How can we find the stillness to hear that inner voice, particularly in the crush of a chaotic, cacophonous, often violent world? 
I have heard Representative Barbara Lee's speech just after 9-11 on replay over the course of the last couple of weeks. The sole voice in Congress opposing the authorization for unlimited military force in the war on terror. She stood up in that room 20 years ago, trembling, saying that she could rely only on her moral compass, on her conscience, and on her God for direction. And I have wondered, how did she even hear that voice? And what about us? Could we even access our own moral compass, our conscience, our God? The UN last month issued a code red for the planet. And the Secretary General said that the alarm bells are deafening. That was before the New York City subway stations flooded like a scene from some kind of horror movie. Climate devastation and poverty, pandemic, racism, a society seemingly collapsing on itself. Most of us here today are not the ones deciding to send troops overseas or when or how to withdraw them, but every single one of us in this bewildering time is making decisions every day that require our ability to hear the inner voice above the din and drumbeat of our time. There's a massive gray area that consumes most of the space in our world today. And we're being asked to make really hard calls about our health and our safety and our children's, about our willingness to comply with or to defy unjust norms and even laws. I know this because these are the things that you call me about. Yet, it's really hard, maybe harder than ever, for us to find the kind of clearing where we can answer those incredibly difficult questions. The noise is real, the stakes are high, and we are exhausted. We haven't slept in years. We're full of grief and worry, shock, and outrage further than ever for moral clarity and a sense of purpose. You, you know me, you who are here today. I'm the... I'm one of those rabbis that stands on the side that believes that, that the job of a clergy person is to shake us out of our complacency and our indifference, to help us recognize the fierce urgency of now and to bend the arc of the moral universe toward justice. And yet, here I am today on the very first day of this new year, and I am begging us to find stillness Stillness is not me time. It's not service of the self. It's not trained passivity. It's not trading activism for mindfulness. I want to invite you to think about stillness as a reordering of our inner world, a discernment practice that's not only a spiritual necessity, but a moral one. Because in the impulsive, reactive, science-denying, profit-driven, power-craving madness, that has taken hold of our culture today. It is literally endangering our planet and our lives and our future. And we need to get really clear about what direction we need to move in to move forward. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs wrote years ago that the ultimate purpose of Judaism is to honor the image of God in other people and thus to turn the world into a home for the divine presence. That is the driving force of my Jewish life and, and my rabbinate. And in many ways, that is the driving force of our community, 
to honor the image of God in other people and thus turn the world into a home worthy of the divine presence. This is an ambitious, eternal goal. And it's one that one generation of Jews after the next has been fueled in its pursuit of by Shabbat, which is the central organizing principle of our faith, a holy day, a day of stillness amidst the raging storm of life, a moment of breath in the breathlessness of existence. Think of the power of that idea. Week after week, year after year, every seventh day is dedicated not to transforming our reality or protesting against it, but living in it with gratitude. One day a week to rest and to sing and to imagine and to dream what's possible. Also sometimes to take a nap, but really to be still. Shabbat is this invitation to each of us to step out of the anguish and to honor the still small voice, and then to re-enter the landscape of human striving and human suffering with a renewed sense of purpose and clarity. And just as our weeks are ordered around a seven-day cycle, so too are our years. What Shabbat is to the individual and the community, Shemitah is to the land and greater society. You're gonna hear a lot more about Shemitah in the coming year. The Torah prescribes us a year of fallow that will allow the people and the lands to heal and to regenerate. And today, the first day of the year, 5782, we enter that seventh year. We're going to dive deep into the learning around Shemitah later on this year in order to see how we can meaningfully embrace this practice. But for now, what I need you to know is that this is more than some ancient, ambitious set of agricultural practices. Shabbat and Shemitah both are rooted in a radical, powerful, dangerous idea. That idea is that we, each one of us, are called to manifest a just and loving and wakeful society, a counter-testimony to the world of oppression and degradation and enslavement and suffering that our ancestors experienced in Egypt and that so many people still experience in this place, in this time today. Rav Kook, who was the first Ashkenazi chief rabbi of pre-state Palestine, writes a treatise on Shemitah in the year 1909 called Shabbat Aretz. And in it, he argues essentially the following that there is a callousness that will inevitably develop in our lives full of toil and anxiety and anger and competition, that callousness deteriorates the moral standard. And it creates a tension between the inner voice, the voice that calls us, as, as Jennifer said earlier, to practice chesed, love, to live honestly, to live with compassion and empathy on one hand, and oppression, conflict, compulsion, coercion, and the quest for material gain on the other. These things distance us from the divine light, says Rav Cook, and they permeate the morality of an individual like a poison. It takes the periodic suspension of our normal social routine to raise the nation spiritually and morally, says Rav Cook, to return it to wholeness. Rav Cook saw periodic stillness for the earth and for our hearts as a moral mandate one that our very existence depends on. And I think about that today with our world convulsing in anguish. We have to get still 
to re-encounter the goodness within, to hear the inner voice of conscience that Abraham finally accessed in the heat of his own sacrificial fervor. I know you, you know by now that, that rabbis always preach the sermons that we need to hear. And I have to admit that it has been very hard for me to find that stillness over these past several years. But over the years, I have touched it. It's often been in the hardest moments when we no longer have use for any words at all. I can now look back at the last 18 years of Ikar's existence, and I can see a film reel that's speeding through the moments of trial and triumph and ecstasy and agony, struggle. But there are certain scenes of sacred stillness that appear now in my mind's eye in slow motion. It's when we held hands at the side of a beloved, helping usher her out of the world, giving her permission to go and promising that we would never let her disappear. It's when we've stood in silence at the setting sun at Tashleaf with the Pacific Ocean at our toes, tossing out into the sea our darkest fears and our deepest confessions, even as we knew they would likely be washed right back up to where we stood, because that always happens at the ocean. It's when we've caught a glimpse across the room of one of our kids standing here at the Torah table, discovering their voice, despite their certainty that they just couldn't do it. It's when we've breathed deeply with our taluses over our heads, knowing after all the isolation that we would never again take granted for one day the simple gift of standing together and lifting our voices to meet each other in harmony. It's when we have found one another again and again as the whole world turned upside down and so many around us were swept up in the fever dream of the big dangerous lie that took hold of this country. It's in the midst of the, the swirl and the twirl of Simchat Torah when the world goes still for a moment and new love is born. And it's when I have stood with so many of you under the chuppah and seen you gaze at each other with hopeful eyes. It's when we found a way to dance, even when our hearts hurt so much. It's at the graveside, when we've knelt down together to place earth with our own hands on the coffin of a beloved who was taken from this world too soon. It's when we've wept together from the depths of our sorrow and when we sing together from that same sorrow. And it's also when I'm back home after the protests and after the fires, after the disco breakfasts and after the deathbed vidouis. It's these moments when I really feel the weight of the work and the privilege of being alive and the blessing of standing so close to so much beauty and so much pain in this world. It's these moments that I am most grateful for especially when the scope and the, and the scale of the horror and the tragedy and the crisis around us nearly knock the wind out of me. It's there that I can hear the voice that inside of me that calls me, as Rav Cook said, back to chesed, back to love, back to honesty and compassion and empathy. And what I have learned in those moments is that we need to honor the interior landscape of our lives beauty and wonder and stillness because that's where we find each other and that's truly where we find ourselves. So on this Rosh Hashanah, the beginning of a brand new year full of all kinds of possibility, 
even as we open our hearts to the sound of the shofar and to the cries of the anguish and to the earthquakes and the fire and the floods and the pandemic. I pray that we make space too for the stillness where the small, quiet, beautiful truths are hidden. I wish you all shana tova, year of health and healing. Hey everybody, Randy Sklar here. I'm an eCar member. And Jason Sklar here. I'm an eCar fan. Yeah, and we uh, love eCar so much. We love the message that eCar uh, delivers in their many podcasts. And we feel like most people feel there aren't a lot of podcasts in this world. I think there are only two or three. There's only a couple. So what we'd like you to do is donate to eCar at ecar-la.org uh, so that they can do more podcasts and more cool things because Lord knows the world needs more podcasts. Yep. 